0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is your host, Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And we're going to jump right into this week's episode. I, before I start saying anything... I didn't give any heads up to the ladies. I don't know if they know this episode. For everyone who's about to listen to my story, I want to say that it's a big trigger warning. Everything that happens in this story is potentially the worst of the worst. might make you a little uncomfortable at some times, but we're going to be talking about lots of different aspects when it comes to the crime community, and specifically with different age groups as well. In the cra- true crime community, this case is A lot of people either know about it or have heard about it. It kind of gets lost in details because it is from a little bit ago. People know this episode or know this story basically because it covers different fields. The accused are women. They were also teenagers. It has to do with an abduction. It has to do with torture and a murder. But most importantly, the victim was only 12 years old. So while the news might run this story as a high school love triangle gone wrong, I particularly want to state again, the victim is only 12. So let's dig in. This is the abduction, torture, and murder of Shonda Scher. Shonda Renee Scher was born on June 6, 1979 in Pineville, Kentucky, to her parents, Steve and Jacqueline Scher. Early on, her parents would end up divorcing, and her mother would marry again and move the kids with her to Louisville, Kentucky. Shonda begins attending St. Paul's School in Louisville and she, around the fifth grade, and she would end up getting involved in like cheerleading, softball, volleyball, and all these other recreational sports. She was a pretty active girl, but her mother Jacqueline's new marriage wouldn't last, and once again, Shonda and her siblings are uprooted in 1991, but this time a little bit further away to a town called New Albany in Indiana. So Shonda ends up picking school back up again, this time at the local Hazelwood Middle School for in sixth grade. At this point, Shonda is 12 years old, and she's described as a girl that looks much older than her age. Some say that she looks like 15 to 16 years old, which I completely agree. If you look at her pictures, she does not look like a 12-year-old at all. In October of 1991, Shonda got into a fight with a 14-year-old girl named Amanda Hebron, and both the girls were sent to detention. While they were there, the girls got to talking and ultimately became best friends. Not too long after, Shonda starts a relationship with this 14-year-old Amanda. And Shonda's mother, Jacqueline, would later say that it was after this relationship began that Shonda's personality completely changed. Her grades dropped, she became detached... It's like overall, she became a different person. So at some point, the mom discovers a sexual explicit letter that was between Shonda and her girlfriend, Amanda. And we're talking about like this young, new lesbian relationship. And you have to remember, it's early 1990 in Indiana. So at this point, we don't know how sexual the relationship is because they're so young. So because of this, the mom pulls Shonda out of the public school and enrolls her in a private Catholic school by the name of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. At this new school, Shonda's grades start to pick up, she makes some new friends, she joins the basketball team, and overall she's doing a lot better in this new environment. But one thing that her mother doesn't know is that Shonda is still carrying on this relationship with the 14-year-old, Amanda. What really complicates things is that Amanda was already in another relationship. She had a girlfriend by the name of Melinda Loveless. Melinda, a 16 year old, was a very, very jealous person. Jealous might even be an understatement and we'll get to that. Because after Melinda learns about Shanda, she begins threatening her. At one point, Melinda forces Amanda to pick between her and Shanda. Amanda ultimately chooses Melinda. Allegedly, Melinda told Shanda, quote, if you ever try to talk to Amanda again, I'm going to fucking end you. End quote. So I can't overstate this enough to you guys about this extreme jealousy that this 16-year-old girl, Melinda, had over 12-year-old Shonda. Ultimately, this plays in a huge part of the tragic events that are about to unfold.
1: Okay. Are Amanda and Melinda at the same school? Yes. So I wonder, like, how is Shonda hanging out with Amanda? Because it seems like she's kind of banned from
0: hanging out with her. Right. Are they just writing letters? Probably. They're probably just writing letters. I mean, the two girls that are originally in the relationship, Melinda and Amanda, they're 14 and 16. So they're probably in high school. Mm -hmm. We know for a fact they're at a different school. And then Shonda is in middle school at a private one across town, sneaking out, writing letters. I mean, it doesn't really say too much, but we know that they kept the relationship going. But at some point, Melinda was like, no, you need to choose between this 12 year old and me. And of course she goes with the 14 year old before I get into things. I want to take a minute and talk about the other players in this case and their ages. Some other individuals include Lori Tackett, 17, Tony Lawrence, 15, 15 year old Hope Rippy, which I will talk about later. Melinda Loveless was born to Marjorie and Larry Loveless on October 28th, 1975. And she was actually born in New Albany, Indiana. She was the youngest of three girls. Larry, her father served in the army during Vietnam, and he was considered a war hero in town. Once he came back home, his wife had a lot of negative things to say about him. The wife Marjorie called Larry a pervert saying that he liked to wear women's underwear, including hers and her daughters. And this was just the tip of the iceberg for Larry. Like this guy's a complete like piece of shit marjorie would go on to state that larry was consistently cheating on her but apparently he and marjorie were in this type of relationship called a a cuckold cuckold i had to look this up so a cuckold wait 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 you had to you know look what this up is? oh 100 do you know what this is you know what that is kylie yeah okay well <laughs> okay one out of three of us knows what it is and it's kylie i, I think i've heard the word before but i thought um, it was a bad word
1: I figured everyone knew what it was.
0: No. Explain Kylie.
1: It's usually like a husband and wife and the wife will like have sex with someone else while the husband watches and he gets Perfect. off on watching someone else having sex with his wife and he just has to sit there.
0: Yes. Yeah. So in the, so now, and this is Melinda Lovelace's parents. So when Melinda was five years old, her and her family would become involved in a local Baptist church for about two years And it seemed as if her parents were diving full into the church, trying to change their ways. They would go to confessions, divulge in everything. They even stopped drinking at one point. Another point, her dad became a preacher for this church and her mother was a school nurse. So it really seemed like they were trying to turn their lives around. But it didn't go quite as well as they hoped because... When Larry became a marriage counselor at this church, he started to gain this reputation that he was too forward with the women and at some point was accused of raping one of the parishioners. So the family packed up, left the church. And from there, everything went downhill if they weren't already for the loveless family. Larry couldn't keep a job. He kept bouncing from job to job, had been fired from all of them. At one point, he was a probation officer for eight months, but he was fired after he attacked an African-American man who he accused of sleeping with his wife.
1: Wait, wait, how did he even get hired as a
0: probation officer if he was? You're asking too many questions. I have no idea. And then from there, he was a mail delivery man for three months, but he got fired because instead of delivering the mail, he would just bring it home and burn it. I mean, this this guy was like the worst of the worst. He was just a douche. He was a complete douche. And imagine having that as a father. There were members of the Loveless family that would eventually say Melinda and her siblings would show up at their houses every once in a while begging for food or begging just to be taken in because their parents didn't care about them. Some point during their marriage, Marjorie was asked to do things by Larry that she didn't want to do. And it drove her to attempt suicide. And this happened actually a number of times during Melinda's young life. Marjorie tried to take her own life while her daughters were growing up. When the girls were young, it was alleged that Larry would rape the mom in front of the girls. The daughters were just forced to sit there and watch it. Now, Melinda would never come out to say that her father abused her directly. But later down the line, there was testimony that many family members said otherwise. It was 1990 when Melinda's dad, Larry, was caught by her mother spying on Melinda and a friend, and this apparently angered her so much that she finally had enough. She tried to attack him with a knife, and it led to Larry being in the hospital, and Marjorie, once again, attempted suicide. This time, Melinda had to call 911 for the medics to come and save her mother. So you can imagine, and she's still a child. You can imagine at this point what it would have been like for Melinda Lovelace and her siblings growing up in such a harmful environment. Later on, the dad files for divorce. He moves to Florida. And after a short period of time of like corresponding back and forth, he eventually cuts ties with the whole family. Even though the dad was such a horrible human being, Melinda took this lack of communication very hard. I know I spent a lot of time talking about Melinda's family but just know that Melinda is a big part of the story. And I wanted to give some sort of sense of what her background was, how she grew up. Just maybe a little bit more of an insight of why she ended up the way that she did. Though there's never really a good enough excuse.
1: You could say she grew up in a loveless household. but
0: So Melinda and Amanda Hevron, they started dating in 1990. And after her dad had left and her mom got remarried, Melinda is super depressed at this point. She's undergoing therapy. She's getting into a lot of fights at school, practically just rebelling anytime that she could. Melinda's obviously a lesbian and she was out about it from a young age and her mom was really not okay with this. She didn't understand it. She didn't like it. She didn't respect it. Then you get to Amanda and Shonda dating, which if you remember is occurring at the exact same time as the other relationship. Melinda was super jealous of this relationship and the two girls were having, um, at some point they went to a dance together. That's when Melinda confronted her and swore that she was going to end her. At some point, Amanda cuts off the relationship with Shonda and the two other girls move on. So now I want to introduce another girl into the story. Her name was Lori Tackett. Lori was born Marie Laureen Tackett on October 5th, 1974 in Madison, Indiana. Her mother was a Pentecostal Christian and her father was a factory worker and convicted felon. And now Lori would say later on that she was molested when she was around five years old. And again, when she was 12, her mom being this fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian ended up playing a big role in Lori's life because there were stories that went around about how Lori used to change into jeans after arriving to school. Like once her mom had dropped her off. And you can assume that Lori wasn't allowed to wear certain clothing items or she had to dress in a certain way. And so when she was at school, she would change into like different outfits, but also different, a different personality. Well, at some point, her mom finds out about this, confronts Lori when she gets home, they get into an argument and her mom tries to strangle her. Somehow social workers get involved, you know, making sure there's no child abuse, which there were. But there were constant rumors that Lori and her mom got into fights and they just didn't get along at all. And one night, Lori is at the home of her friend, Hope Rippy. And Lori's mom finds out that Hope's dad had bought a Ouija board. I don't know if you guys have ever played with a Ouija board, but I sure did when I was young. So that's probably why I am the way I am. But Lori's mom was so distraught and upset about this Ouija board that she banned the girls from hanging out. But as Lori got older, around 15... She became more rebellious. She just, she started to develop an interest in the occult, you know, the supernatural beliefs and practices, basically a Pentecostal Christian's mom's worst nightmare. She starts to hang out with a difficult group of friends and says that she's possessed by the spirit of some type of vampire. At this point, she decides to self-harm and this becomes a big theme in many of the girl's stories. They do a lot of harm to themselves, a lot of self-harm. And one incident in particular that happened with Lori is after she was dating a girl and engaging in some occult behaviors, Lori's parents found out and they put her in the hospital. The staff at the hospital ended up putting Lori on antidepressants, but after a few days of being out of the hospital, Lori attempted to cut her wrists and ended back up at the hospital. This time she was sent straight to a mental ward at 15. So Lori was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder ended up telling the staff that she was experiencing hallucinations and she had since she was a child. And right after her junior year of high school, Lori drops out. In October of 1991, she wasn't in school. She was bouncing around and staying with a bunch of different friends. And at this point, she had become really good friends with a girl named Melinda Loveless. Lori had known Melinda for years, but it wasn't until 1991 that they became very close. Okay, so now let's talk about Tony Lawrence. Tony was born in February, 1976, and she was best friends with a girl named Hope Rippy, which we've heard of before, but not too much. They had been best friends since they were kids, but just like the rest of the girls, Tony had experienced a really rough childhood. She was abused from the age of nine, raped when she was 14. And the reason I'm spending so much time talking about this is because these girls in the story, they grew up in horrible home situations and it's Really sad, what's really sad about Tony's rape is that it happened when she was 14 and the police at the time didn't do anything about it. And they knew the person that had raped her. The only thing they did was issue an order of protection over Tony so that the guy couldn't go around her anymore. But that's it. The guy didn't get in trouble or anything. So after that, Tony did some counseling, but she didn't really participate in it and would often try to skip it. After this incident, like the other girls, Tony began to act out, self-harm, and she became very promiscuous as well, and even attempted suicide in the eighth grade. Now let's move on to the last one, Hope Rippy. Hope Anna Rippy was born in June of 1976. Her parents had divorced when she was about eight. She had moved to Michigan with her mother and three siblings for a few years but I couldn't really find too much details on her childhood. Like I could with the other girls, but it was mentioned a few times that she had gone through a turbulent childhood. And in 1987, hope and her family moved back to Indiana. And this is when hope began to spend time with Tony Lawrence and Lori Tackett. And I say this because all these girls knew each other in one way or another, because they had grown up in the same schools, but now that hope had moved back and they were older, they all started to become best friends. What was said about Hope is that her parents thought Lori was a really bad influence.
1: No one you've mentioned has had a somewhat normal childhood.
0: No, not a single one. Not a single one. This is where the story really starts. On January 10th, 1992, Lori would drive Tony and Hope from where Lori lived in Madison, Indiana... To where melinda Lovelace lived in new albany indiana and when the girls were at melinda's house this was the first time that tony had ever met melinda and hope had met her one time before so other than Lori, they don't know melinda and when they get there melinda shows them a knife and comes out and says that she's gonna scare shonda share with this knife but then get this The three other girls other than Melinda had no idea who Shonda was. They had never met her. They had never heard of her. She was grades younger. But Lori, the driver, apparently knew of this plan ahead of time to scare Shonda because Melinda had told her that's why they were going over to the girl's place. But Hope and Tony did not know what was going on until they got to the house. So they start to hear the story from Melinda about how she doesn't like this 12 year old. And that she thought she was kind of a copycat person, mainly because she had taken her girlfriend away at some point. Although, if you remember, she really didn't, because in the end, Melinda's the one that got chosen. So all the girls leave Melinda's house, and the four of them drive to Jefferson, Indiana. And this is, they were driving to Shonda's house, which is, Shonda was staying with her dad at the time. And the girls on the way stop at a McDonald's to ask for directions they end up getting to Shonda's house right before dark. At this point, Melinda tells Hope and Tony to go to the door and has them tell Shonda that her ex-girlfriend Amanda wants to see her at a place called the Witch's Castle. And you have to remember, Shonda has no idea who Hope and Tony are, so she just assumes they're friends with her ex-girlfriend Amanda and she goes along with it. So the Witch's Castle is what the girls called this abandoned house that was nearby it sat on a hill overlooking the ohio river at this point i'm just going to remind you again shonda's 12. um she can't just peace out and leave her house at any point during the like nighttime shonda tells them that her dad's awake and she just can't sneak out of the house so she says come back around midnight and i'll be able to sneak out then so the girls leave they end up driving around kentucky they go to some type of punk rock concert And eventually they leave the concert, drive back to Shonda's dad's house. And on the ride there, Melinda Loveless says she can't wait to kill Shonda. The girls all get back to the house around 1230 a.m. And a couple of the girls go up and get Shonda from the house. At this point, Melinda is in the backseat of the car hiding with the knife. When they get Shonda into the car, Hope is the first person to start asking questions about how Shonda knows Amanda and, you know, what the situation was. And at a certain point, Melinda Loveless springs up from the back seat, revealing herself, and she puts the knife to Shonda's throat, pulls her hair back, and starts grilling her about the the relationship with Amanda. So they're all driving along in this car, heading towards Utica, Indiana, which is where the witch's castle is. And Lori is in the car talking about the legend of the castle and how it was apparently owned by nine witches and the people of the town burned down the house to get rid of the witches. So basically all that's left on this property is this abandoned old stone house that has mostly been burned. When the girls get to the witch's castle, Shonda is completely freaking out, crying um you know she was a baby had a knife held to her throat the entire drive and unfortunately it's just gonna get worse the girls then bind her arms and legs with rope and melinda starts taunting shonda about how she thought hey would you still be pretty if i cut all this hair off would you still be pretty if i stabbed you etc and just think about a 12 year old shonda being in the state bound being yelled at by older teenagers in the middle of the night away from her home um, with these girls who are just tormenting her and she doesn't know any of them except for one it was said later on that the girls had taken off of taken off all of Shonda's jewelry they were dancing around taunting her trying to scare her about the witch's castle and how she was going to be the next victim and I know I haven't said this yet if it's not obvious the ex-girlfriend of Melinda and Shonda Amanda she's not there At some point, the girls are done tormenting her and they put Shonda back into the car bound with rope and they take off. Shonda's pleading with all the girls to let her go, take her back home, but none of the girls are listening. Melinda at one point makes Shonda take off her bra and her top and gives it to Hope to wear, who is now driving the car. At a certain point, the girls get lost and they have to stop at a gas station to get directions. Lori goes inside to get the directions while Tony calls a boy from the gas station outside chatting with him, but she never once mentions where she is or what she's doing. The girls eventually drive off and get to the edge of the woods near where Lori lives in Madison, Indiana. They drive down this road that's a gravel road and it leads to a garbage dump. This is when Melinda and Lori get out of the car and they force the 12 year old Shonda to strip naked. At this point, Melinda starts to punch Shonda over and over, slamming her face into her knee, and now it's starting to get super, super physical. Melinda pulls out the knife, and that's a, it's at this point she tries to slit the throat of Shonda, but this knife is so dull that it wouldn't cut her throat. So what the girls do, specifically Melinda and Lori, is they start to stab Shonda in the chest. They take turns between each other over and over, They end up strangling Shonda at some point with a piece of rope until she passes out and they put her in the trunk of the car. And at this point, it's said that later on, the girls thought that Shonda was dead in the back of the trunk because she had been stabbed multiple times and strangled. So with Shonda in the trunk, the girls all drive back to Lori's house to clean up themselves. Because you can imagine they have quite a lot of blood on them, especially Melinda and Lori, the ones who did all of the stabbing. But when they get to the house, they hear Shonda screaming from the trunk. So Lori grabs a paring knife from inside her house, goes back out to the car, and several more times stabs her. Lori goes back into the house, washes the blood off, and now the girls are just hanging out, trying to figure out what to do next. And what Melinda and Lori decide is that they're gonna go for a drive to clear their minds. But at this point, Tony and Hope, who didn't know Melinda, didn't know Shonda at all, beginning to this well before this night decide they don't want to go on the drive and they're just going to stay put at Lori's house so melinda and Lori go back out to the car start to drive again and they hear a noise coming from the trunk they pull the car over open up the trunk and what is said later on is that shonda sits up in a distorted state as you can imagine and Lori takes a tire and iron from the back of the trunk and beats shonda until she stops making noises Eventually, Melinda and Lori make their way back to Lori's house where the other girls, Tony and Hope, are. They all sat around laughing about the events of that night, but at some point, Lori's mother wakes up and starts yelling at her about, what are these girls doing in my house? It's so late, etc. So Lori takes the girls home. Again, they're all back in the car. But what they decide to do next is drive to a local gas station where one of the girls buys a bottle of Pepsi, pours out the Pepsi, and fills the bottle with gasoline. And Lori drives, all, drives the car with all the girls into it back to that grassy field located off the gravel path. And it's said at this point that Tony was the only one who didn't wanna get out of the car when they pulled over. Tony then witnesses Melinda open the trunk and Hope sprayed Shonda with Windex that was in the car. They're once again taunting her and Lori and Hope wrap Shonda up in a blanket, carry her out to this field and Lori made Hope pour the Pepsi bottle full of gasoline on Shonda. And it's at this point that they lit her on fire. Melinda wasn't sure if Shonda was dead, but apparently they stood there for several minutes watching her struggle in the fire before Melinda took the rest of the bottle and poured out all of the gasoline on her to make the fire stronger. 12 year old Shonda Cher had been beaten unconscious multiple times, bound with rope, stabbed repeatedly in the chest. Strangled with cords, beaten with a tire and iron, this torture went on for hours. And then they eventually burned her alive. This was all done by four teenage girls ranging from 14 to 16 years old. And over what? Jealousy. Obviously, Melinda Loveless spearheaded all of this, but she was the one that was jealous of Shonda's relationship with Amanda. But the fact that these three other girls just went along with it is really tough to understand.
1: Super weird is... Like Tony and Hope, they didn't get back in the car, you know, that first time. Right. They stayed at the house and it seems like, oh, they might not, they might be thinking like, okay, this is, this has gone too far. But then they yeah. jump right back in it and pour the gasoline
0: on her. And it's what, well, because if you remember, they get caught by Lori's mom and, and Lori's like, okay, let's get back in the car. I'll go drop you guys off back at home. So they probably got in the car thinking they're going um. home, but then they stop at the gas station. And Lori and Melinda are the ones that make them buy the gasoline, the Pepsi bottle. And then when they get to the field, Lori was the one that made hope for it on to Shonda. But, you know, at some point, and these girls don't really know the rest of the girls, too, which is...
1: They're also probably scared they're going to be next
0: if they don't... I would. Yeah. You know, like, and, and they're the younger of the ones as well. I mean, they're still teenagers, but... That's what I was going to say. What's crazy is just the age of all these girls, women, girls, girls, basically. And then the 12 year old.
1: and the tw- Yeah, that's a kid. So yeah. that's crazy. And I mean, we know most people that kill end up being men and just the age of these girls. It's yeah. bad.
0: So what's really heartbreaking, if this wasn't already enough, is that it would ultimately come out in court that Shonda's last word was mommy. And if that doesn't hit home, I don't know what does. I mean... That just cements everything that it's a 12 year old child you know she was in middle school she wasn't in high school she hadn't had her life experiences you know her last word was mommy that makes me like (laughs) so sad but if you remember shonda at this point was supposed to be staying with her father the next morning her father gets up notices that shonda isn't home he calls the police and reports her missing immediately That same morning, the four teenagers are at McDonald's eating breakfast. They're just sitting around making jokes, and some of the jokes are about like how Shonda's body looked like the sausage they were eating. I mean, really grotesque, like, awful things. But one thing that they do talk about during breakfast is that they're making a pact to keep quiet, and that if they all keep quiet, they'll never be linked to the killing so Lori eventually drops tony and hope off at their houses like she said she was going to and then she goes back home with melinda and once they're back at melinda's house the two girls call amanda they tell amanda everything and this is when they make plans to pick up amanda later in the day at some point these girls drive off to go pick up amanda get back to melinda's house And Amanda later says that she didn't believe the story. She thought that they were just joking and Melinda was a jealous person. So she never believed that they actually killed Shonda. But at a certain point, Amanda is forced to believe the story because they show her the trunk of the car. And inside this trunk, there's bloody handprints, there's socks, there's a sweater. And Amanda really starts to get upset and asks for the girls to take her home, which they do. And Melinda drops her off, kisses Amanda, and tells her that she loves her, but she begs Amanda not to tell anyone, and Amanda agrees. That same morning on January 11th, there are two bird hunting brothers that stumble upon the body of 12-year-old Shonda Cher in the woods. They would later say that when they were walking up to the body, they thought they were seeing something like a department store mannequin that had been lit on fire. But as they got closer, they realized it was the charred remains of a human body. So they quickly called the police and one of the responding officers first on the scene was a guy named David Cam. Now, (laughs) this is just a side note. The officer turns out to have an interesting story himself because not at this moment, but a few years later, Officer David is charged in the murder of his entire family. But he ends up getting acquitted. So- Just a side note, has nothing to do with our current story, but I thought that was just like a very interesting thing. I love how pure people are thinking that everything they see is a mannequin everything. because I think that every trash bag on the side of the road is has like a head in it, you know? I always think the trash bags are our bodies or yeah. I think it's like an animal. You
1: know, what's also funny is I don't think I've ever seen a mannequin out in the wild.
0: But if I did, I'd be really <laughs> freaked out. No, that's so I
1: would, I would I think would. it's a body before I think it's a mannequin.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the police get to Shonda's remain and they begin to collect evidence from the scene. Initially, they believed it was some kind of like drug deal gone wrong or some other type of scenario. But in no way, shape or form, did they have an idea that four teenage girls had murdered horribly a 12-year-old. But the good thing is, is they wouldn't have to wait for long because this pact that we talked about that occurred at McDonald's didn't last long. That very night, Tony Lawrence broke down and she told her mother everything that happened the night before. Her mother dragged her to the police. Tony ended up giving a statement to the police, confessing to everything. This is the girl who didn't want to get out of the car when everything was going down. So it's kind of not surprising that she was the one that broke first. It was said that Tony was so distraught and not able to make any sense, but at some point she told her story and she let the police know that in fact, the charred remains they had found was Shonda Cher. And Tony went on to name all three of the other girls that had been with her that night, Melinda Loveless, Hope Rippy, and Lori Tackett. And the police were able to match the body to the missing files report that Shonda's dad had sent in earlier and it ended up being confirmed through her dental records. Melinda and Lori were arrested the next day, January 13th, and most of the evidence came against them. It came from the mouth of Tori Lawrence and her statements, but we also know that the police had physical evidence too. I mean, once they got to the trunk of Lori's car. It was decided early on that these teenagers were going to be tried as adults because of the nature of the murder. Each of the four girls accepted a plea bargain so that they could avoid the death penalty. I did take a good bit of time at the beginning of the story to talk about the troubled childhood of these girls, and that was definitely taken into consideration during the trial as well. There was still consideration that these girls would end up getting a lighter sentence than most people would have received if they had been older or didn't have as much of a troubled background. There was thought that the court looked at each girl's upbringing, their home lives, and how it played a big part in the general sentencing and their acts of what have occurred. You know I'm not one to say, like, give excuses for what people do, but I will say all four of these girls had horrific childhoods. They were raised awful, they were treated awful, and most likely they were not in stable mental conditions. But in the end, Shonda did not deserve a single thing that was done to her. In 1993, Melinda Lovelace and Lori Tackett, the two girls who mainly performed torture and murder, both received 60 years. But in 1994, they both appealed their sentences and were denied. Hope Rippey was originally given 60 years, but after her appeal, her sentence was dropped down to 35 years. Hope ended up being let out of prison, she paroled, in 2006, so she only served 13 years in prison. Tony Lawrence was given 20 years, but she was released in 2000. She ultimately served seven years. Lori Tackett ended up being released on January 11th, 2018, after spending 25 years in prison. And January 11th, 2018, when she was released, was the 26th anniversary of the murder of Shonda. So now here's a fun fact. In 2011, Dr. Phil had Shonda's mother and sister on his show. And from a prison interview during the show, Lori spoke out publicly for the first time. And Lori stated that during the taping that she, if she could do anything to go back in time, she would have never been there that night. And wanted nothing to do with what happened. But you have to remember during this time, she was actively appealing for parole. So really she would say whatever she wants to make herself look good. Lori went on to say that Shonda's death should have never happened. And I mean, no shit, none of it should have happened. But Lori maintained that she was sorry for it. Now in 2005, Shonda's father ended up passing away from alcoholism at the age of 53 years old. And it was said that he had become so depressed after Shonda's murder that he basically drank himself to death, which is almost understandable. Shonda was staying with her father that night when she was murdered. So I'm surprised, you know, that he was able to go on that long as awful as that sounds. I mean, I couldn't imagine. I want to take a second and talk about Melinda Lovelace's father, Larry. I spoke earlier about how horrible of a human being he was and it ended up coming to bite him in the ass anyways. He ended up getting charged with 11 counts of child sex abuse for everything that happened. And some of the details that ended up coming out in the court affidavits were worse off than I had even talked about earlier. It came out that Larry once had chained three girls together in his garage, raping them. The affidavits also came out that he once penetrated a girl with a loaded handgun. I mean, you could basically do a whole episode on this guy. So I'm glad to say he was caught and convicted of his actions. But unfortunately... Larry was sentenced to time served and released from prison in 1995. Fortunately, Larry ended up dying in 1998 after he purposely jumped into traffic. Thank God.
1: Did he do all of these things after he had left the family or these things that happened before?
0: This is while he was with the family.
1: Oh, God. Did you say he jumped into
0: traffic? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now let's talk about something. On the more happier side. In January of 2009, the Shonda Share Scholarship Fund was established. And this fund every year gives a scholarship to stud- two students from New Albany, Indiana. One goes to a student who wants to continue their education, and one goes to someone who's wanting to further their career. And in 2012, Shonda's mother, Jacqueline, ended up making kind of indirect contact with Melinda Lovelace, who was still in prison. Apparently, when Melinda was in prison, she started working with a dog training program and she trained dogs to be service dogs for people with disabilities. But well, at some point, Shonda's mom finds out about this program from a dog breeder and decides that she wants to donate a dog. So the dog's name is Angel and Angel goes directly to Melinda for training. And basically, Jacqueline says that she wanted to do this because she wanted something good to come out of everything that happened. But she doesn't plan on just donating this one dog. She now donates a dog every year to this program in honor of her daughter, Shonda. So sad. It's really sad. And knowing that every dog you donate every year is going to Melinda, your daughter's murderer, is, like, really sad. On September 5th, 2019, Melinda Loveless was released from prison After serving only 26 years, she's currently 43 years old and is serving out parole in Indiana. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the horrible story of the abduction, torture, and murder of Shonda Scher. Yikes. I told you it was going to be a rough one. I know that everyone who's listening to this can't see the PowerPoint at the moment, but it kind of, I think it almost hits home a little bit more because of their ages, like being able to see their faces and how young they were. I mean, they look like babies. And then you have Shonda who was 12 years old, but I have to say Shonda almost looks like the oldest of them all. Like she was absolutely beautiful. She definitely looked like she could have been 16 or 17 at 12 years old. So, I mean, that's no excuse, but it's just it, it's it is interesting to see what they all looked like and with their ages and everything. Yeah, this was a story.
1: I do want to know how you guys feel about the sentencing, like the years they all got. They all ended up getting out early. But I feel like like Tony and Hope, you no, know, didn't really plan it. They got the lighter sentences. I feel like that's pretty justified, I guess. Like they did participate.
0: Yeah. They went to the cops too, you know, like Yeah.
1: So yeah, they definitely got time off for that. But then Melinda and Lori getting out after 25 and 26 years
0: seems light. But you also have to remember they were children. I was definitely like I had mixed emotions when doing this story. No, because I actually knew of their sentencing. I had heard a story about their Senate, like getting released early because Melinda was just released a few years ago. So I had heard of the story of like they didn't serve that much time and people were like really pissed about it. But then you also have to remember like 15, 16, 17 years old. Serving 25 years. I mean, you're a completely different human. Melinda was what, 43 when she got out of prison compared to going in when she was like 16? Like, that's crazy. You're a different human. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know how I feel. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the judge's seat when it came to sentencing or parole. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I'm in the same boat. It's kind of hard. Like, it was absolutely terrible, but you're right about the ages and their childhoods. I don't know. That's a hard thing to balance.
0: I wonder, and I wonder too, if Shonda's mother, I want to know what she thinks of the sentencing. Like, is she okay with them all? Because they're all released at this point and living their own lives. So like knowing that your daughter's horrific murder, you know, tort, I mean, she was tortured and beaten brutally and everything. And they're all just walking free today, but that was like 30 years ago. So yeah, I know like when someone goes up for
1: parole, the victim or the victim's family can like give statements and like be against it or for it. I mean, I don't know if that's what she did or if any like weights actually given to that. Yeah.
0: No, I wonder. I didn't, I didn't see anything about what her mom, cause at this point her dad had passed. So what her mom had to say about it, but you know, she, if you look her up, she seems to be doing a lot of advocacy about her daughter and like the scholarship fund. And she's still, even though Melinda is out of prison now, she still donates a dog a year to the, to the program, which is actually really expensive. And Kate, sorry about that. Didn't have a good ending. Didn't have a good ending, but also like screw that dad, Larry, like, Oh my God, what a horrible human. And Melinda was his child. So like, you got to also think like she grew up with that as her dad, And with that, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. If you want even more information, including photos and sources of the case, you can check out our blog on overmydeadpod.com. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at Pod. And we will see you next week with another thrilling case. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.